we are um, glad to have him here. He, he is a father of um, three, two girls and one boy. And um, so we're just happy to have him here. Will you just give him a warm um, Orange SDA welcome? Thank you, David. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, David tells me good things about you. I hope you have good things to say about him, too. He's a good guy. All right, let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning, to learn more about what you have for us and what you want us to do as your people. We pray that your spirit would bless us now as we think about these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes planning a surprise can be more fun than being surprised. I remember many years ago, uh, shortly after my wife and I were engaged, my mother's best friend called us up one day and told us that she wanted to plan a shower for us, only she wanted it to be a surprise for my mom and dad. Now, my mom and dad lived back in New Jersey. We were going to school in Michigan. So it took a great amount of planning, of course, the whole time my mom and dad were not to know anything about it. And what can, you know, planning a surprise at times can be complicated, and it can require a lot of deception. Of course, that's okay when you're planning on surprising someone. Any other time, it's not. It's the ethics of surprise parties. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or not. Anyways, uh, my mother often uh, likes to, would like to call, and she would call frequently, and we would have to lie and make up stories and all kinds of things about our plans for that coming weekend. But when the time came, we flew to New Jersey. My mom's best friend picked us up at the airport, took us to her house, and we hid out there for a few days until the shower. It happened on a Saturday night. At one point, my mom and dad actually came over to the house rang the doorbell. We were in the kitchen, and we all made a mad dash for a closet and hid in the closet while my parents walked into the kitchen and carried on a conversation with my mom's best friend, never knowing that we were there at all. The fun of surprising people. Of course, the best part of any surprise is the reaction. And I'll never forget my parents' reaction that night. Classic response, you know, when you're in that moment, the surprise party, and the lights come on, and everyone yells surprise. There's this moment of bewilderment, shock. They can't figure out what is going on. And that's what happened to my parents. And oftentimes, in the, in the perfect surprise, someone will cry. That's what my mom did. So it was a, it was a good surprise. Go with me again to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 18. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And let me set it up for you while you're going there. Jesus has returned to his hometown of Nazareth. It's the Sabbath day, and he shows up at the local synagogue, as any good Jew would do. Uh, and he, all the men are there, women are there too, uh, separated. Uh, the children are there in the back of the synagogue. And many of these people are Jesus' old playmates, kids that he'd grown up with, friends from his childhood, and he's given an opportunity, the hometown boys come back, they give him a chance to open up the scriptures and read from them before his entire hometown crowd. And he chooses to read from the prophet Isaiah. 
And here's what he reads. Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And then Luke says, Everyone in the synagogue looked at him intently. They looked at him intently. Why? Word has gotten back to Nazareth. They say that Joseph's son, Mary's son, has been traveling all around Galilee, preaching in synagogues, causing quite a stir. Everyone's talking about him. They say that he's casting out demons, that he is making people see, making people walk. There's even rumors that he's raised people from the dead. And not only that, he is preaching like no one has ever preached before. They say that he is filled with God's Spirit. So all these rumors about this hometown boy follow Jesus when he shows up. And as he comes into the synagogue that day, every eye is upon him. And he walks up, and he opens up the scriptures, and he reads from them. He reads from the prophet Isaiah. And not just any passage from the prophet Isaiah. One of the passages, a messianic passage, a jubilee passage, a passage that is the sum of their hope as a people. The time of the Lord's favor. It's something they all longed for, they all hoped for, and they're not dumb. They can connect the dots. Could it be true? Is it possible? A Galilean, and not just a Galilean, someone from the town of Nazareth is saying these things? See, Galileans were common people. They were intermarried with Gentiles. They were considered religiously uneducated, they were considered the unwashed people of the land. The upper crust people of the south despised Jesus and his fellow Nazarenes. They spat on people like Jesus and his town folk. Nothing good was expected to come from Nazareth. Nothing. And so Jesus reads from these scriptures. And he reads from a time of the Lord's favor will rest on the people. It's something that they have longed for for centuries. All of Israel has longed for this day. Surrounded by nations that have oppressed them, tortured them, enslaved them, occupied them, controlled them. And now finally, someone is coming along and claiming that he's the Messiah and that with him is coming the year of the Lord's favor. But these poor country folk notice something else they realize another implication of what's happening here as well. They've always been looked down upon by their rich neighbors, their rich cousins in Jerusalem. But now, if it's true, if it's true what Jesus is saying, they're going to be the ones on top. Their town, their people, they'll have all the power. Good news. And then, with all these thoughts Racing through their minds in the synagogue that Sabbath day, Jesus closes the scrolls, hands them to the attendant, sits down, and I bet you could hear a pin drop in the synagogue that day. And Jesus says in verse 21, 
The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. And Luke writes, everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be? They asked, isn't this Joseph's son? It was the last thing they ever expected to hear from a hometown boy. Surprise! Surprise. One night, when I was a kid, my father got out an old wig, put on some tattered clothes, and snuck out of the house. We just finished dinner, and the doorbell rang, and my little sister ran and opened the door. There was this creepy-looking man standing there, and she let out a blood-curdling scream. And I can tell you this, it wasn't surprise. I've done this to my kids, too. <laughs> Not long ago, I tried to surprise my daughter, McKenna, and I heard her coming into our bedroom up the stairs, and so I, I hid behind the door. And then I waited for the right moment, just timed it perfectly. I can't recall exactly what I did, but I jumped out and I made some strange noise. I thought maybe I'd replicate it for you, but I have too much pride to do that. Well, she wasn't surprised either. And instantly she burst into tears. Not just tears, she was wailing and my wife heard all this going on downstairs, and she yells from, from, from the kitchen, what is going on? What did you do? And I said, I don't know. You know, she just started crying. Who knows? I wanted to surprise her. Only I ended up shocking her. A mentor in ministry once told me, always surprise people. Never shock them. Well, maybe Jesus should have listened to my mentor taking his advice because in verse 23, Jesus sees their reaction to what he's just said and he responds, You will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then verse 25, Jesus says, Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner. Then he says, A widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. Luke writes in verse 28, When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious, and jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which was the town was built. And they intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. From surprise to shock. What happened? Some comments about their prophetic past, a history lesson from the time of the prophets, and this is how they react? One moment they're amazed, 
looking at him intently. And the next, they're enraged, wanting to kill him. What happened? What did he say? What did he do? What could have caused this kind of shock? Jesus chooses two stories from their past history. The first story from the days of Elijah. There's a famine in the land, and Elijah is being hunted down by his enemies, and God comes to his aid through a widow in the land of Sidon. Second story, days of Elisha, when Naaman, a Syrian, a military officer with leprosy, is healed after Elisha tells him to bathe in the Jordan River. But notice how Jesus prefaces each story. The first one, he says, there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner. Second one, he says, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. So what's the connection? They're both outsiders. They're both enemies of Israel. Sidon and Syria are mentioned numerous times in the scriptures, often as the oppressors and the occupiers of Israel, Gentiles cursed by God. And the thought that God would reveal himself to an outsider that he would link them together, insider and outsider, is unthinkable, and it sends them into a murderous rage. Many of us share similar longings with those in the synagogue that day. Many of us desire God to be revealed in our lives, too. The very fact that you are here this morning means that in some capacity in your life, you desire to experience God. You want to see God working in your life. You want God to be revealed. But the question is, are we really ready for God to reveal himself? Are we ready? Because God will surprise us at times. But often, he's going to shock us at the places he chooses to reveal himself. You'll be surprised. But if you're ready to look around, you will be shocked. If there's one thing we can take away from this story, it's that we can't tell God where he can and can't show up. He reveals himself wherever and whenever and to whoever he chooses. We can't tell God what God should do. God is not under our bidding. God won't do a miracle here just because we want him to. God will love and bless and help whomever God wants to love and bless and help. If God decides to help a widow in Zarephath, who's an outsider, that's what God will do. And if God decides to heal Naaman, a Syrian, an occupier, that's what God will do. And if God decides to bless someone who is an illegal immigrant 
or a homosexual or an atheist or a self-righteous Adventist or even a racist Christian, that's what God will do. And if God decides to care for a Muslim from Iran or a terrorist from Afghanistan, that's what God will do. Luke's story in our gospel reading today reminds us that no one is Christ's special people to the exclusion of others. If we worship Jesus only for what he does for us, then we've missed out on God's unlimitable gift. And what is that gift? His presence. And his presence is his grace. And there's the shocking part about all this. It's often through the unlikeliest of people, places, situations, and the places we consider way outside the boundaries of where God would go, that we often experience God the most. The Bible is filled with shocking revelations of God. For example, just consider the birth of Jesus. Matthew tells us in his gospel that Jesus was visited by magi from the east. These were not the regal wise men of our nativity scenes at Christmas. Daniel Schroyer believes we often forget the fact that these men were likely pagan astrologers who felt compelled to search for God through a star. She writes in her book, The Boundary-Breaking God, From the very beginning of Jesus' life on earth, God makes it clear this Messiah is going to muddy the lines between who is in and who is out. The story of the astrologers is the story of God's expanding love from the viewpoint of unexpected outsiders. God delights in breaking boundaries. God delights in tearing them apart. God delights in breaking through walls. And there's boundaries in our lives. There's boundaries in our homes. There's boundaries in our neighborhoods. There's boundaries in our schools. And there's boundaries in our churches. And you know what? There's boundaries that need breaking in our beloved Seventh-day Adventist church. And there's boundaries that need breaking in this country that we love. And we must ask ourselves, if we are a boundary, if we worship a boundary-breaking God, are we willing to be boundary-breaking people? Tony Campala, one of my favorite preachers, tells a story many years ago in one of his books called The Kingdom of God is a Party about traveling to Hawaii for a speaking engagement. And he arrives in Honolulu late at night, and he's hungry, and he decides to walk through some of the streets of Honolulu looking for a place to grab a donut. And he finds this coffee shop early in the morning, like 3 a.m. It's still open. He walks in, asks for a donut, and sits down and, with a cup of coffee and goes about his business. When in walks a group of prostitutes who are out working the streets that night. And they sit down at the table next to Tony. And he listens in on their conversation. And Tony learns that one of the girls there is about to have a birthday party. She even tells her friends. Her name's Agnes. Agnes tells her friends, tomorrow's my birthday. And they laugh at her. Who cares if it's your birthday? What do you want, a cake or something? And she says, I'm just saying it's my birthday, that's all. 
they go on about their business. And they leave eventually, and Tony gets an idea. And he approaches the lady working at the checkout counter. And he says, hey, do you know those young ladies there? She says, yeah, what do you want? I mean, they're in here every night. She says, one of them said it was their birthday tomorrow, Agnes. Oh, yeah, Agnes. He goes, listen, I have an idea. He says, what if tomorrow night I come back here when they come in and we throw a party for Agnes? Birthday party for her. What? She calls back to her husband who's working back in the kitchen. Hey, come out here, Tony. Tony comes out. Hey, they want to have a birthday party for this girl. What do you think? He goes, what? Okay. And so Tony said, all right, listen, if you'll make her a cake, I'll go out and get balloons and party supplies, and I'll come back, and we'll decorate it, and we'll have a party for her. So they agreed. So the next night, Tony arrives and walks in, sets up the place, balloons, streamers, party supplies, everything ready to go. They have the cake there, and in comes Agnes right on schedule with her friends. And she looks and she's around, and she sees a cake with her name on it, and they yell surprise and sing happy birthday, and she's stunned. She can't believe her eyes. And she says to the Tony and the people working there at the restaurant, she says, no one has ever done this for me before. Do you mind? Can I have this cake for just a minute? I promise I'll bring it back. I just want to go show some of my friends. I promise. And she takes the cake and she walks out. And the guy working in the kitchen says, you know, who are you? Who are you? And Tony says, I'm a preacher. A preacher? What? There's no preacher like this. If there was a church like that, like you belong to, I'd join a church like that. What kind of church is that? And Tony said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning. And the guy says, no such thing as a church like that. And I wonder, is there such thing as a church like that? Is there any church that exists like that? You know, thinking about the implications of following a boundary-breaking God into uncomfortable places and situations may leave us feeling like my daughter McKenna did that evening I tried to surprise her, scared for our lives. Maybe we're afraid God is going to make us do something that we don't want to do. Maybe he'll send us somewhere we don't want to go. What will we say? What will we do? Theologian Bruce Eppersley writes about this. He says, those of us who seek to follow God's vision for our lives often have moments of utter panic when we realize where God's lure forward may take us. And in those moments, when we are shocked at the places where God is taking us, the things God is asking us to do, we may be afraid. But as the psalmist says, O Lord, you alone are my hope. Yes, you have been with me from my birth. No matter where we go in this world, God is with us. In fact, God is already there ahead of us, waiting for us. Eppersley goes on to say, The lure forward is always greater than the perception of our gifts. 
But the God who gives us a dream is always present as our companion to bring us to God's vision to fullness in our lives. Do you remember the tactic that the United States military used when they invaded Iraq back in 2003? Do you remember what it was called? Shock and awe. And the definition of shock and awe was that it was a military doctrine based on the use of overwhelming power, dominant battlefield awareness, dominant maneuvers, and spectacular displays of force to paralyze an adversary's perception of the battlefield and destroy its will to fight. Well, God has his own form of shock and awe. We may be shocked by the places God reveals himself to us. Revelations will abound in the likeliest of places, people, and situations. But if we open our eyes, if we open our hearts, if we take the risk of being vulnerable and trusting God and putting our care in his hands and being to go wherever he leads us, you know what? We will be shocked but we will be in awe of what God is doing. Not through overwhelming power, not through dominant maneuvers and spectacular displays of force, but we will be left in shock and awe by one thing, God's love. Amen.